Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, my name's Troy, pronouns he, him. Huzzah, and I'm Ed, my pronouns are they and them. And today, we're talking about the classic Dungeons & Dragons setting of Mistra. Woo, so classic, I've never heard of it. And also, the things that are within it. The Known World, The Savage Coast, and The Hollow World. It's a setting that I personally have never played in and I'm not super familiar with, but it has a lot of interesting stuff built into it that, you know, I think some of it deserves to come back for 5th edition. Mostly the Savage Coast and Hollow World parts, but, you know, if I was running a Planescape game, they would probably show up. Fair enough. But before we dig real deep into that, we have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. I'll go first. Uh, My week in hobby was substantially more impressive than the last one. I played, or I ran two games of Dungeons & Dragons, my Eberron campaigns. In the first one, the the party got to do a joke that I have been sitting on for a while. Which is, they had to deal with Roland the Headless Arcane Archer. <laughs> which is a play on the Warren Zevon song, Warren the Headless Thompson Gunner. It Essentially, it was a revenant arcane archer that was tracking down a, well, the mercenary who betrayed it and cut off its head. And the party gets dragged into the middle of it and has a cool fight with an arcane archer undead. And, uh, yeah, they, they fought it. They failed to protect the guy that they were trying to protect, but that's probably for the best because the guy they were trying to protect is the one who killed the guy in the first place. Oops. So, um, he was not the good person in this situation and they kind of came to that realization at the end, but it also let me drag the party closer to the Mornlands. So that's probably going to be the next thing they go have to deal with. The other party, having, you know, done a bunch of side quest stuff lately, finally decided to get back on the main plot, maybe more so than I was expecting. Although they did first talk to a NPC about starting a business, and so they might be, um, they might be starting an energy drink, energy potion company. <laughs> That markets a potion called Thunder Muscle. I like it. That I I, I assume it's going to be Monster Energy Drink, basically. But uh, yeah, I can't think of a a better name than that. That that's what they came up with was Thunder Muscle, and also they've been talking about maybe if it gets big enough, they'll start sponsoring like events, and it, basically they're trying to go full Red Bull with it, which I I approve of. I think that's going to be fun. <laughs> But then they, you know, decided to take a hard right back into the main plot and track down some cultists uh, that are working for the evil Rakshasa that's the main villain so far. And so they tracked them down. They fought some. They fought the lower level Eberron Rakshasa things, the like mid-tier ones. Cleared the hideout, rescued a tiefling bard that was down there. 
whose name was Jackson with two J's. So they've got J Jackson running around with them now. When he said uh, Jackson with two J's, I immediately thought of uh, Jackson with two X's from the abyssal depths of the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Oh, 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 yeah, no. <laughs> no, two J's. Just, it, 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 they, they started calling them J Jackson. And yeah, a bard that had been kidnapped and forced to teach the cultists how to juggle and do acrobatics. That's important because the first time they ran into these cultists, they were posing as a, like, juggling and acrobatics group. So, now they know why and how they managed to pull that off. But yeah, the team has some options ahead of them. I might have them deal with a haunted theater because I've been setting some stuff up with that. Or I might just send them off onto the big expedition arc that I have planned. We'll see. They can always do the haunted theater later. Woo! Uh, oh, I also played some Fallout New Vegas, which is not technically a board game or tabletop game, but it's close enough, especially after we did that episode about computer role-playing games. It's board game adjacent. And I'll, uh, I've been kicking myself all week for not bringing up uh, Disco Elysium in our discussion of computer game RPGs, because that one, it's a interesting blend of audiobook, choose-your-own-adventure, and tabletop RPG. So if you haven't played Disco Elysium, uh, I highly recommend that one. Yeah, so that's been my weekend hobby. Ed, how about you? Yay. I've uh, been working more on Song of Ice and Fire. That's pretty much the only game thing that I've been working on at the moment. My second unit of Lannister Dudes is finally finished. It might have been faster than the first one. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but at this point, I'm just like, yep, they're done. Moving on. I tried a new technique for gap filling which I don't know how well it actually worked, but basically you take the UV reactive resin that you would use for your 3D printer and you use like a Q-tip to just get it all up into those gaps and then you set it in front of the UV light and let it do its thing. I tried it on the Frog Hemoth uh, model that I got a while ago. Um, I can't really say how well it worked at this point. I'll probably have to prime it and put some paint on it to see. If it does work, it'll be a lot easier than using the green stuff that I've been doing to gap fill, especially for stuff like Crisis Protocol, which needs a lot of gap filling. I got some starter decks for Flesh and Blood, which is a new TCG, which is starting to eat some of Magic's lunch. Weirdly, they didn't include any instruction manual or anything in with the starter decks, and when I went to go look for their rulebook online, it gives you, like, the comprehensive, uh, big enough to beat goats to death with rulebook that you use for, like, tournaments, and I'm just like, uh, this is not off to a great start. No, it sounds like it really needs a get-started-playing set of rules, like, um, everything ever released by Fantasy Flight Games has at this point. Yeah, I found, I found a, like, get-started rulebook, but it's 
kind of buried a bit deep in their website and it's not the first thing that it takes you to when you select, you know, this is how you play. It immediately takes you to the official rulebook. That's a design oversight, I think. Yeah, but it's it seems to be popular in the guise of the game store. They had things about it that they preferred over magic, which is nice. And then while I was there, I also got a uh, another set of the dudes from Warhammer Underworlds. This one is the Ocean Elves, and it includes like two elf dudes and uh, some sea critters. Uh, there was a crab model from Games Workshop that became something of a minor meme for like a week when it came out. And uh, I've been looking for that one for a while. So now that they're starting to go out of print, I'm just kind of hoovering up those Underworld sets as I find them. Who knows how long it'll take me to get to them, but yeah. All right, question. Mm -hmm. Why do settings always have sea elves and not sea dwarves? I don't know. Because, I mean, we know that they have sea mines. (laughs) Or, you know, you could just come up with, like, a whole new undersea species to begin with. I like the crab people from the Aquaman movie. Just have a whole race of crab people in, in Warhammer. I'd play that. Oh, yeah, the the Crab King dude, which was just, um, it was just that one actor hamming it up, and that made it amazing. And I can't remember who it was. Bring, bring Crab people to Warhammer. That is my new, my, my new rallying cry. Yes, and they have to have glowing weak spots that you can hit for massive damage. I will say there are some other large army games out there that kind of experiment with like the traditional like fantasy war game races formula. Um, some of them have some interesting stuff out there. So I'll have to look around and see what other interesting models there are out in the world. Actually, I think there's one Wrath of Kings or something that has a whole like sea folk race. Yeah, it's been a while since I looked at Wrath of Kings. A little while ago, they were having like a big fire sale at Miniatures Market for Wrath of Kings stuff. But I know they had some they had some interesting twists on your kind of basic fantasy stuff. There was, I think there was one more that had some interesting stuff, but my, my brain can't think of it. It's early. No, it's not. You just overslept. It's early for me. All right. So with our weeks in hobby out of the way, let's talk about Mr. Mistra. Mysteria. Mysterio. No, wait, that's, that's that's comic books. So, Mistara was one of the early Dungeons & Dragons settings, and it first showed up in first edition Dungeons & Dragons. It was used as sort of a base setting there for introducing concepts beyond just straight dungeon crawls. Hex Grid Exploration was first done in a module using this setting. Mistara is a world with three major and distinct settings on or inside of it. The first is the Known World, a classic fantasy area located on the continent of Brun. The second is the Savage Coast, a frontier region of swashbuckling pirates and jungle wilderness under the effects of an ancient curse. Arg. And the third is the Hollow World, a vast inner world with a red sun 
where civilizations and species lost to history are preserved. The setting was developed initially as The Known World by Lawrence Schick and Tom Moldvay, and when the pair of them got hired by TSR, they started to incorporate elements of their game world into the adventure modules they were writing. And in 1981, they published The Isle of Dread, which was sort of a starter module for first edition. And it was set in the known world. And the known world at the time was a fairly typical fantasy setting with a number of nations based loosely off historical places. I'm a quick over thing about the entire setting is that the gods in Mistara work a little different. They're known as immortals. They're not gods in the same sense as some of the other settings where they're like heavenly beings that, you know, were created along with the world or or just purely out of magic, but rather they were previously mortal beings who attained incredible power and ascended to godhood, basically. There are no native gods. They were all once normal people who became immortals and turned into gods. And so the fact that they have connections to the mortal world means that they tend to meddle in events a lot more than deities of other settings. That being said, they do still create clerics and grant divine magic. Uh, most clerics worship one or more of the immortals, and... Many of them have, you know, kingdoms that they personally look after. So, then, the Known World is the first part of the setting, and it includes a number of locations based heavily on historical places on Earth. Uh, the Thracian Empire is sort of a Byzantine Empire-themed nation, where it was once much larger and has lost about half of its territories, but it's still, you know, dealing with a lot of internal political struggles. The Grand Duchy of Karameikos is sort of uh, Greek. It's, it's kind of southeastern Europe, Greek area, where it's adjacent to the empire, uh, but recently separated from it, and it includes the town of Threshold, which was sort of a default first edition village starting location. Uh, the Principalities of Glantry are sort of a Western Europe, sort of Switzerland, France, except ruled by mage princes. They're, all the rulers of the kingdom are wizards. And divine magic is banned on pain of death. They put clerics and druids to death if they show up. Heresy. Yeah, no. Wizards only. Nobody is allowed to worship the gods. The Republic of Darokin is sort of Italian city-states. Uh, heavily mercantile, heavily, you know, trade-based. Lots of guilds. The Heldanic territories are ruled by an order of religious knights, like the Knights Templar. Um, there's also a Khanate that's, you know, Mongolian. There's a couple of nations that are sort of Nordic-themed. It has a lot of the various types of things that you would expect from a standard fantasy setting. There's a Elven Kingdom. There's a a dwarven place called Rockholm. There's a group, an area called the Five Shires that's 
your halflings. There's also a, like, island nation that's sort of loosely connected to this that's kind of Atlantis. You know, they have a advanced magic and stuff, but they're farther away and harder to get to. The Known World provided, for first edition, a setting that was kind of generic and you could do what you wanted with it, much in the same way that Greyhawk had done. A, it had a bunch of different kingdoms. It had some interesting places to go and interesting characters to meet. But it didn't have a lot of a core theme going on. It was a good place for writers to put adventure modules that didn't have a huge amount of setting stacked onto them already. And just throw it in there. It's fine. Also, it kind of integrated a little bit of Blackmoor, which was one of the old settings that wasn't really published, but just sort of mentioned in the creation of Dungeons and Dragons because it was one of the settings that was used before Dungeons and Dragons was a thing, when they were first kind of hashing out what the rules were. Uh, in this case, the reference is that Blackmoor was an ancient civilization that you know, developed advanced technology and then destroyed themselves and all the new kingdoms sprang up thousands of years after that. So after a while, they started developing more stuff and they wanted to kind of keep it in the same world. And so they pub and so TSR published a setting book called Red Steel. For fairly simple reasons it since got renamed to the savage coast because the area is the savage coast it's a like far far to the west from the known world and it's a like thousand miles of coastline located under a ancient curse known as the uh i think it's just the red curse where there's sort of a reddish dust haze of magical particles that fill the area and uh, cause all sorts of weird shit. The coast is a swashbuckling series of city-states and jungles and, like, ancient fallen empires and all sorts of stuff uh, covered by the Red Curse, a haze of red dust, that creates magical powers within people called legacies, but also creates mutations and drains stat points. Basically, it's pirate X-Men. Uh, you get a special ability, but you also lose a certain stat, usually something opposite to whatever you've gained. Like, if you gain super strength, it'll sap your intelligence. <laughs> I are strong. Yeah, if you gain enhanced constitution, it'll sap your charisma. Something like that. And also, it tends to mutate and make you look weird. There's a whole set of rules for what the different options are for how it mutates you and how it works. And there's a metal called uh, Cinebril that is can be used to like keep these mutations and stat drain stuff at bay. But you have to like wear it on you. And it is depleted over time. So you have to constantly replace this metal that protects you from the mutation and becoming afflicted by the stat drain stuff 
And because this happens to everyone, the metal is in high demand. And, you know, finding it or finding sources of it is a major element of conflict for players. Um, the metal can also be used once it's sort of its magical defensive power is depleted. It can be used in forging swords and steel items, and that's where the red steel comes from. Uh, this part of the setting also has gunpowder weapons uh, called smoke powder, which is made in part using the red dust that covers everything, which is an interesting way to create your gunpowder without actually using the elements that make normal gunpowder, but instead magical existing stuff, and also explain why it doesn't work outside of this one part of the planet. There's a bunch of different city-states and kingdoms and ancient ruins and fallen empires here and a whole host of stuff about, you know, uncovering the secret of the curse or trying to find a way to deal with it. If you leave the cursed area, it has substantial substantial negative effects. Basically, you lose your magical powers that you've been gained, your mutation stuff goes away, but the, like, detrimental effects don't. And it can kill you. No matter what you do, you just can't win. Like, if you leave and it doesn't kill you, it does eventually start to fade over the course of, like, months or years. But it's a good way to keep people... Basically, it keeps the setting contained. It means that you don't have gunpowder-wielding pirates rolling up to the high-fantasy known world area. I mean, that sounds kind of cool. The gunpowder pirates in the known world, or the fact that it's contained within the Red Mist? Uh, the gunpowder pirates. It would be kind of cool, but it would also break immersion, I think, if you've got, like, a group of knights on a holy quest, and then a pirate shows up and is like, Yo-ho, me hearties, I'm a pirate with magical psychic powers. Or whatever your legacy was. I'll still allow it. It's the coherency problem of Dungeons & Dragons, where there's so much cool stuff, but you have to pick things that are setting appropriate, otherwise it's really weird. And speaking of that, the Savage Coast is also where Dungeons & Dragons introduced the Turtles, aka the Turtle Folk Race. I didn't know that. Yeah, they first showed up in Savage Coast, and uh, now they're in 5th edition, and you can play them there, but this is where they came from. A piratey jungle campaign. In that, they had, like, villages and small farms, but they, they didn't have any large empires or anything. They were just sort of natives to the area and lived mixed in with everybody else. They were incredibly non-offensive. They could be in any part of the Savage Coast. Everybody kind of got along with them. We're just hanging out, being turtles. And the last part of uh, Mistra is the Hollow World. Essentially, Mistra is hollow. And the hollow internal section can be accessed via the North or South Pole just by walking. 
Uh, essentially, it loops around. Gravity is magic. So you can just, like, walk in. Um, however, there is a large anti-magic zone in the North and South Poles. So you can't teleport to it or, like, take a magic ship or something of that nature to get there. You have to actually walk through freezing snow and mountains and stuff. And eventually you end up inside the world, which is lit by a like magical red sun and is full of ancient lost civilizations and dinosaurs and kingdoms that, you know, are being preserved as sort of a historical record of the stuff on the outside. It's a living museum almost. There's also a bunch of strange races, you know, elf variants and other species that you don't normally see because the idea is that anything that didn't fit in the other worlds could go here. No problem. The realm is run by a powerful immortal known as Ka the Preserver. Ka was the first magic user in the setting and the first person to actually become an immortal, you know, turn into a god, uh, he discovered the internal structure, the, like, internal hollow thing when a meteorite was about to hit the world and destroy his species. Because, you see, Ka the Preserver is also a dinosaur. <laughs> nice. Specifically a Carnosaur. So... You have an immortal godlike T-Rex that rules the inside of your hollow earth planet. This sounds like a setting I would have come up with when I was 12. It's pretty it's pretty ridiculous. Um the nice thing is uh, the, the cool thing is that Ka the Preserver having become an immortal and basically a god is really chill. Um, he takes that preserver thing super seriously and so is constantly acting to, like, bring in new civilizations as they fall and find species that might go extinct and pull them into the, the hollow world stuff. And so he's not, like, tyrant lizarding it up. I'm down with, with chill dinosaurs. Yeah, chill, super-powered, godlike dinosaurs with all the magic. The Hollow World is interesting in that, you know, it's this com combination of all these ancient lost civilizations and crazy monsters and all this stuff preserved. And also, magic doesn't work the same way. Uh, High-level spells, uh, there's a bunch of spells that don't function and a bunch of things that function differently because the, like, the red sun has effects on all of this stuff. So it's, you know, not a standard fantasy world. And in fact, the whole you're inside the planet rather than outside it makes it even more not a standard fantasy world. I don't know a huge amount about like what civilizations are inside. I think there is one that's kind of Atlantis and some that are, you know, Mesoamerican. And I believe there's a Viking based one, but the, there's a whole bunch of them and they all kind of have to coexist. Just put a dinosaur civilization in there. Oh, the dinosaurs aren't civilized. Um, Ka the Preserver was kind of a weird outlier in being sentient. And a high-level magic user. But there are lots of dinosaurs around. 
and we can just we can just homebrew in the uh, the Roman dinosaurs from Keyforge. Yeah, that would be totally cool and doable. So yeah, that's the basic gist of Mistara. You have your known world, which is classic fantasy stuff. You have the Savage Coast, which is swashbuckling mutant pirates. And the Hollow World, which is epic mythological hollow earth with dinosaurs and Aztecs and Atlantean lost kingdoms and stuff. It provides a really large range of things that you can do, and you could theoretically use all three aspects of this in a single campaign if you wanted to do a lot of, like, globetrotting voyaging around and exploration. Personally, I think this is actually a setting that could be brought back, in part. The Hollow World and the Savage Coast elements in particular are very strong and have really strong thematic elements that would be worth reviving in 5th edition. And honestly, I would say that you could publish essentially a three-part book, which one part talks about the known world, one part talks about the Savage Coast, one part talks about the Hollow World, and, you know cover it in enough detail that you could get a solid setting campaign book out of it for D- for 5th edition. Sounds like a plan. I think they should do it. Yeah, I I think reviving it is probably l- should be lower on the list than reviving Planescape and reviving Dark Sun. Do it. Both of which are more coherent and stronger, but it's a world that I would want to see before we see Dragonlance again. Yeah, Dragonlance can wait. Of course, I'd also like to see them sort of produce a new Forgotten Realms book that just sort of cleans that up a little and talks about what 5th edition versions of things look like. But I don't care that much about Forgotten Realms, so they can take as long as they need for that. Everybody knows what the Forgotten Realms is at this point. Yeah, there's so many 3rd edition and 4th edition books for it that you can look up whatever you want in remarkable detail. But yeah, Mistara, it's got some cool stuff. Personally, I think the most likely thing I would do for it is if I was running a Planescape game, I would have players be sent to places on Mistar. I would have players be sent into the Red Curse to, like, locate a shipment of Cinebril that's supposed to be brought to the somewhere else in the plains. I'd have them, you know, go into the Hollow World to cut a deal with someone in for a shipment of dinosaurs or something. <laughs> dinosaur smuggling. Yeah, dinosaur smuggling, or... Maybe some wizard lost a thing and, you know, Ka the Preserver is holding on to it. So you have to go in and negotiate with the dinosaur god king. You know, there's all sorts of cool options for stuff you can do with the setting. And I think Planescape is probably how I would get to it because I don't know how much I would care about the rest of it. Although it could be interesting to sort of borrow parts of the 
Savage Coast for a swashbuckling campaign where there is maybe a small chain of islands that have the red curse and not the entire setting. Yeah, that might be a, a good suggestion. Yeah, where, you know, if you're from that those islands, you get the mutation and the curse. Um, or if you spend too long there and then you do some of the other stuff that's going on with that. Would perhaps be what I would do if I was trying to integrate that into a pirate game that I was just running and didn't have a setting in mind for. Same with elements of the known world. I kind of like the, like, mage princes, or wizard prince kingdom, that divine, that have banned divine magic and murder clerics when they show up. No gods, no masters, only mages. Yeah, that's something I could, that's something I wouldn't mind integrating into a setting of my own, where you have a kingdom ruled by a group of mages that you know, hate divine magic for whatever reason, and so make a point of, you know, killing non-magic, killing divine magic users. Uh, that kingdom also has a very strict, like, caste system about if you can use arcane magic or not. Uh, you, you, basically, wizards are commoners. Um, if you can use arcane magic, you're in the, like, magic-using class, and if you can't, get you're gonna get fucked. Yeah, commoner wizards doesn't seem that's uh, uh, different from what we normally think of with D&D wizards. Well, it's sort of a magic user, non-magic user cast system. So if you can use magic, congratulations, you're basically a noble in this kingdom. If you can't use magic, you have basically no rights. That sucks. Yeah, well... The Principality of Glantry is not a good-aligned nation. Evil! The wizard princes do not care about you. They they murder any cleric, no matter if you're a cleric of the, like, nice-themed sun sun gods, or if you're a cleric of evil McEvilson, you're gonna get killed. Bro, not cool. Actually, same goes for... Same goes for warlocks, actually, because you're getting power from a, you know, source that's not your own arcane magic. Although I'm not sure if that should be the case or not. Uh, That's something to think about if you're trying to integrate that into a modern campaign. But yeah, I I think Mistara has a lot of cool things to offer. I'd like to see it brought back into 5th edition. I didn't even talk about the various different races because the three different settings are the three different like internal settings each have collections of races. Um, there's like dog wolf men on the Savage Coast, along with uh, cat people that I guess are just tabaxi now. There's lizard folk. There's a whole bunch of weird like elf variants inside the hollow world. There's, um, I want to say there's, like, another, like, lemur people. (laughs) Yes. Um, I think that came from the Savage Coast, but I'm not entirely sure. It has a whole bunch of variety of races and cosmopolitan cities and all sorts of interesting stuff that could be brought in. You probably don't need to bring in all of it, because some of them can just be like, oh, it's this, but with a slightly different 
variety? I mean, honestly, with uh, Spelljammer coming back, you could just add Mistara into Spelljammer and just be like, there's this weird planet, there's nothing on the surface, but, you know, as soon as you get below the surface, it's like, oh, there's an entire planet down here. You could certainly add the Hollow World into Spelljammer, which would be interesting. I think that's that's how I would do it. I mean, but that only gets one of your three parts of the setting. Yeah, but that seems to be, like, the most interesting one, at least for me. Okay, so you think the Hollow World is the most interesting? Yes. Cool, I like the Savage Coast, which is outside of it. So yeah, so at least two out of the three parts of the setting are worth revitalizing and bringing into 5th edition. Get on it, Wizards of the Coast. Accede to our demands, or... I don't know what we'll do. Or we'll keep buying your books. Yep. We'll just be forced to keep buying them. Yes. Or, alright, accede to our demands, or we will play a different system. Oh, no. This is the greatest threat you can give Wizards of the Coast. When they do something you don't like, you can always just play a different game. We all know that's not going to happen, though. Once I can get my shenanigans together, I figure we'll probably at least probably play a short game of uh, Morkborg. It sounded like maybe Star Wars was one that had a interest had been expressed in after our current D&D game. Yes, uh, Star Wars, perhaps Lancer, if people are interested in Lancer. Lancer is the, the robot one, right? Yes, sci-fi mechs. I think I recently heard somebody talking about that. Oh, it was on um, the Game 4 podcast. One of their hosts is primarily an RPG player, and I think he's running a Lancer campaign right now. I like Lancer. It is very crunchy. But not but not like excessively crunchy. I guess crunchiness just kind of depends on my mood. I think maybe if I was playing, I would be more into a crunchy game as opposed to trying to run it. Since with 5e, I like to be able to just kind of wing it as a DM. To be like, yep, that follows the rule of cool, let's do it. Uh, rather than rather than having to do a lot of complicated math and having players call me out on it and be like, hey, that math doesn't add up. And 5e is quite good for that. The thing with Lancer is because it's a mech game... It gives you a lot of options for customizing your mech and having them do various mechanical things, mm. which is what people want, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. If you're playing a game with giant mechs, the sort of light rules aspect doesn't work quite as well. You want to be able to like strap extra missiles on there or overload your reactor to do extra stuff. And Lancer is very good about giving you cool options for what you can do. Yeah. It also helps the dungeon master or game master by having a whole bunch of pre-made NPC mechs in various styles and attributes so that you can just throw them in. And it also has some like pre-design encounter stuff because uh, the mech fights could honestly be like if you had a grid mat and 
ran like two equal levels of mechs at each other, you could treat it as a small scale tabletop war game. Oh, that'd be cool. If you if you really felt like it. Yeah, the only other tabletop RPG I can think of off the top of my head is uh, Animal Adventures, where you have basically awakened wild animals that the players can be. Uh, it was published by a Steam Forge. Yeah, that's a 5e module. Yeah. that That's still Dungeons & Dragons. Dungeons & Dragons, but it's... It's a little bit different. It's, it's homebrew content. It's published homebrew for Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, I've been playing the the Sprawl, which is the Powered by the Apocalypse cyberpunk game. I think that's probably coming to an end, though. Oops. Uh, it's, it's time commitments and stuff. It wasn't a heavy, like, story campaign. It was a lot of one-shot, do jobs, get paid, or don't missions so there, there was not a serious overarching story for it so it ending is not as much of a like bad thing as some campaigns would be well, i guess that's good at least yeah there was like every session was a mission that ended in that same session if we weren't using the same characters every time it could have just been like six different one-shots. Mm -hmm. With that all said, I think we've pretty much covered Mistara and our thoughts on it and our thoughts on other games, including Lancer, briefly, for some reason. So, that brings us to the last segment on the podcast, Board Game Corner, where we talk... Woo! ...and review a board game. And today, we're talking about... Battlestar Galactica, the board game. Published by Fantasy Flight Games in 2008, and based on the 2004 Battlestar Galactica TV show, it's currently out of print, which is sad because it was a really... I don't know if it was a good game, but it was a very thorough game, and I played a lot of it. Essentially... It's three to six players, and players take roles of characters from the series, and your job is to take the ship to its destination and deal with the Cylons, the enemy robots, and with the various, like, crises and events that happen throughout the series um, that are threatening your ship and your fleet of ships. The thing is, like the show... Some of the players are secretly Cylons. You're dun dun dun. You're secretly a robot. So it has a hidden hidden traitor mechanic added to it, which works out pretty well. You pick your character, which are either political leaders, military leaders, pilots, or support. Each one has benefits, drawbacks, and a like one-time use ability. And then you draw a loyalty card, which determines whether you're a human or a robot, and determines your, like, win-lose condition. Humans win if they get to the final point of the game. The robots win if the humans run out of uh, one of, like, four resources, or if the main ship is damaged over a certain amount. At the halfway point, 
players draw another loyalty card. So you can think you're a human until halfway through the game when suddenly it turns out you're a robot. I had no idea this entire time I was a robot. Yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of something that happened in the TV show, so... Because you were a sleeper agent robot. The way it works, essentially, is each turn you get to move, you get to activate a location on the ship, and then you draw a, like, event or crisis card, and then... Everyone has to do something, usually by chipping in cards, to try and defeat that event or crisis card. And because you chip in the cards face down, and then shuffle them up and reveal them, the secret robots can chip in things that have, like, negative values to sort of make it harder to win. If you suspect that a player is secretly a robot, you can send them to the brig... Or, if you're a certain character, you can just murder them. There's also certain things that allow you to boot them off the airlock. Ejected. Uh, which is really bad for morale if it turns out they're actually a human. Made a whoopsie-daisy. Uh, the thing is, if they, if they were actually a human, they get to draw a new character card and come back into the game but they don't get their once-per-game ability. So there's no um, player elimination mechanic. That's nice. If they were actually a robot, they get sent to the, like, resurrection ship for the robots because their consciousness is downloaded by the robot backup, and they can still do stuff. They can essentially increase the pace of incoming enemy NPCs. I've been in backed up to the cloud. And do and do other stuff and harass the human players from the resurrection ship. It's it's a very solid mechanical aspect of it. Because there's bluffing, there's co-op, there's deduction, there's negotiation. Um, and there are... Oh, also, you can gain the titles of Admiral and President, which gives you certain extra abilities... Uh, the Admiral, for example, gets to fire the nukes. Yeah. The President gets to decide on certain crises. Like, a crisis will come up and it will say, like, do one of these two things. And it'll say, it'll be either current player decides, or President decides, or Admiral decides. So, you know, it's up to whoever is currently in charge. Generally, if someone takes both the Admiral and the President title, you should not trust them because they've gone full military dictatorship. <laughs> but that's just a little bit of gameplay. There were a number of expansions, essentially adding elements of the later seasons of the show. Uh, the expansions were Pegasus, Exodus, and Daybreak. They add extra boards to the thing, extra decks of cards, new characters... And, like, new final locations that you're trying to get to. My group liked playing with the uh, Exodus and Pegasus expansions. And not so much the Daybreak one, although we did like the Daybreak, like, end goal of getting to Earth. Spoiler for a show that's been, that came out in 2004. And that's Battlestar Galactica. If it wasn't out of print, I would recommend getting it. 
but it is out of print, and so if you can find a copy that's less than $100 somewhere, go ahead and do that. Yeah, boy. And that's our show. As always, thank you for listening. I've been Troy. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Knoll Country. You can follow us on Instagram, where all I post is a thing that says a new episode has come out, so you really don't have to follow us on Instagram. Uh, you can like or rate or subscribe to our feed on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. You can support your local game stores. You can uh, do whatever the things Ed is about to tell you to do right now. Uh, instead of following Knoll Country on Instagram, you can follow me on Instagram at Adam Madness. I uh, post all my painting shenanigans there. Couldn't think of a Null Country branded product for this week. So instead, give your uh, cash to any number of charities, be it uh, queer queer representation and rights, reproductive justice, Ukrainian aid. Just give them your money. Yep. Nail that outro. Yeah. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>